Hello. In November 1666, Lady Margaret Denham, a prominent member of Charles II's court and mistress to the future King James II, fell ill. She died two months later. Diarist Samuel Pepys records, I hear that my Lady Denham is exceeding sick, even to death, and that she says, and everybody else discourses, that she is poisoned. It could even, Pepys writes, have been a plot to kill the king. The poison was concealed in a cup of hot chocolate. Despite having captured the public imagination at the time, Margaret Denham's death has become an unimportant footnote in 17th century history. In this series, we explore her life and death in detail, investigating one of the most high-profile homicide cases of the Restoration. I'm Romy Nuttall, and I'm here with Sophie Shawland to finally find out who hath done it. So, in the murder of Margaret Denham, we have already investigated the possible motives of Anne, Duchess of York, and Elizabeth Mallet, the heiress of the West. Margaret Denham was having an affair with Anne's husband, the Duke of York, and heir to the throne, and may also, in a plot twist, have been seeing <laughs> Elizabeth Mallet's future spouse, the poet and outrageous wit John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester. Both women, Anne and Elizabeth Mallet, were independent and wealthy. They had the means and potentially the motive to get Margaret Denham out of the way. But can we even definitely say that Elizabeth Mallet is a suspect in our investigations? <laughs> <laughs> yes, for those of you who have listened to the previous episode, there was quite a major plot twist there. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that there were two Lady Rochesters alive in the restoration, both of whom could have committed the murder. And this is partly because of the complexity of restoration naming conventions, something we've mentioned before. When someone with a title died, it was given to someone else, often almost before the body had time to cool. And this was the case with the two sets of Rochester couples. What happened was John Wilmot, the poet and original Lord Rochester, died on the 26th of July, 1680, at the age of 33. He was young. He had syphilis. He, yeah. He and Elizabeth Mallet had four children, three girls and one boy. The boy, therefore, inherited the title and became the third Earl of Rochester. But tragically, the 10-year-old Earl died only a year later. Mm, poor Elizabeth Mallet. Really sad. Yeah. And so the other children were daughters. They couldn't inherit. So the title was free to be awarded elsewhere. It was given in 1682 to Lawrence Hyde. The name Hyde might be sounding familiar to you by now. So Edward Hyde was one of the most powerful men in the kingdom, setting policy as Lord Chancellor. While Anne Hyde, his daughter, was the suspect we looked at in episode two. So Lawrence was Anne Hyde's younger brother and therefore the brother-in-law of James, Duke of York, next in line to the throne. He was part of the powerful and politically influential Hyde family, sworn enemies of Margaret Denham and her uncle Bristol's faction at court. Lawrence Hyde's wife, Henrietta Hyde, became Lady Rochester when her husband was promoted to the title in 1682. So, since Margaret Denham died in 1667... It might seem obvious, and this is certainly what it was to us when we started (laughs) investigating this, that the suspect at the time was Elizabeth Mallet, who was then Lady Rochester, who was suspected of murdering her. But history can never be that simple. Unfortunately, no. (laughs) So originally we heard about Lady Rochester from our 1924 history book. And just to remind you, the book said that Miss Brooke, so that's Margaret Denham's maiden name, married Sir John Denham, and within a year, the hapless beauty was dead. It was hinted that her illness came from a cup of poisoned chocolate. Whether it was administered by her jealous husband or Lady Rochester, people were not decided, but that she was poisoned and that her troubled spirit found no rest was believed by most people, who even reported that the Duchess of York had seen the ghost. But this book is referencing a much better source, someone who was actually alive at the time of her death, and so kind of counts as an eyewitness in our investigations. And this was the antiquarian gossip collector and social butterfly, 
John Aubrey. So we had a look at John Aubrey's writings and found the extract that the history book is referring to, and it's in a brief biography of Margaret Denham's husband, Sir John Denham, and all Aubrey has to say is, and I quote, his second lady had no child, was poisoned by the hands of the Countess of Rochester with chocolate. And that's it. So... (laughs) Thanks, Aubrey. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> More detail, please. Yeah. So as far but as... That's this... where we come in. Yeah. We're doing the detail. Exactly. So actually, great that you didn't yeah. say that much. We would have nothing to do <laughs> <laughs> if history was simple. What would be our point in the world? So as far as this note from Aubrey is concerned, the Countess of Rochester could be either woman, Elizabeth Mallet or Henrietta Hyde. And although he was alive at the time of Margaret Denham's death in 1667, Aubrey was compiling the notes we're using as evidence until he died in 1697, when Henrietta Hyde was Countess Rochester. Mm. And Aubrey's notes, confusing the matter further, were notoriously random. So although he's a really, really good source and is usually giving accurate information about the time, the time at which he was writing is almost impossible to date. His mess of notes about the people and events he'd witnessed over the course of his long life were compiled at the end of the 19th century by a Church of England vicar. And I love it because you can practically hear the vicar pulling out his hair in frustration when he describes Aubrey's composition style. Yes, this poor vicar. So to quote him, Aubrey's love of life was so intense, his curiosity so promiscuous and so insatiable that he proved quite incapable of completing any work he undertook. Each one was started in a most businesslike and practical fashion, but before long, the original plan was always buried beneath the flood of digressions and notes, of horoscopes, letters and stories, which his restless mind seemed quite powerless to control. <laughs> you kind of feel like if this vicar was so frustrated, why did he, yeah. why did he set I out to like do this? I feel like it's sort of a love-hate affair, though. <laughs> It's true. He's like, so frustrated, but he's Aubrey's also so entertaining yeah. with his flood of horoscopes and random information. Yeah. So having decided to write at life, Aubrey selected a page in one of his notebooks um, with jot down as quickly as possible everything that he could remember about the character concerned. So that character's friendships, appearance, actions, books and sayings. Any facts or dates that did not occur to him on the spur of the moment were left blank. And as Aubrey was so extremely sociable, he was usually suffering from a hangover whenever he came to put pen to paper. The number of these omissions is pretty pretty large. In the first kind of flush of composition, his mind, quoting here, raced so far beyond his pen that he frequently resorted to a sort of involved shorthand and made use of signs instead of words. He then read over what he'd just written and put in any stories that he thought were even vaguely relevant, wrote alternatives to words and phrases, inserted queries, numbered words, sentences and paragraphs for transposition, disarranged everything. Any facts that occurred to him later were jotted down quite at random in the margins if there was still room, otherwise on another page or in the middle of another life, often in a different volume, sometimes even in a letter to a friend. And then the text was left. He rarely made a fair copy of anything that he had written because, as he confessed, he wanted patients to go through (laughs) knotty studies. (laughs) Yeah, I love knotty studies. I feel like that's how I felt doing my PhD. (laughs) And oh, I think it yeah. summarises scholarship very well. Yeah. Um, I think I actually still have naughty studies quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why is there no evidence for what I want to say? Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm right. Why can't I find it? Yeah. Um, if only writing a PhD was just like writing Aubrey's life. <laughs> yeah. Just like, I've had my ideas on that now. <laughs> on to the next. Yeah. I oh, I've, jo- I've had another random idea. I'm just going to put it in a margin <laughs> for someone else to deal with later. <laughs> yeah. So you get the idea that he was just writing basically anything that came to mind. He was often hungover. And it makes him a fabulous source because he was friends with everyone. Mm. And talked to so many people. He had so many kind of interesting observations about life. But you can really feel the compiler's frustration trying to organise such a mess into some sort of readable narrative. And Aubrey's notes were composed over a very long period. Aubrey said of himself, 
my head was always working, never idle, and even travelling from 1649 to 1670 was never off horseback, did glean some observations, of which I have a collection in folio of two quires of paper plus a dust basket, some whereof are to be valued. So he just quite a lot of paper. (laughs) Just stuck them in a dust basket. (laughs) So although Aubrey died in 1697 at the grand old age of 71, a lot of the material was gathered earlier and in just like totally random order. And I think since our source we've established is proving impossible to date, we are going to have to look at the evidence for both Elizabeth Mallet and Henrietta High's lives to work out which we think is the most likely candidate for the murder of Margaret Denham. So, does Henrietta Hyde even have a motive for murder? We're going to start our investigation with Henrietta Hyde's family, since I think it's important to understand her personality in the context of how her family made their money and got their social and political influence. They were clever, ambitious, and often not very scrupulous when it came to matters Mm. of conscience. Her grandfather was one Richard Boyle, an Englishman who had arrived in Ireland with a gold bracelet, a diamond ring, and £27, three shillings. He ended up becoming one of the richest men in Ireland by the end of his life, mainly through luck and chicanery. His enemies often fortuitously died just as he was about to get his comeuppance, and he died having climbed the social ladder high enough to become the first Earl of Cork. Pretty cool. Yeah, kind of cool. Maybe he was actually a bit of a shit. Bit of a knave, yeah. yeah. But confusingly... Henrietta Hyde's father was also called Richard Boyle, second Earl of Cork, and his name was Richard the Rich. (laughs) So no points for guessing how his nickname came about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Richard the Rich's marriage to Henrietta Hyde's mother, the connected and wealthy Elizabeth Clifford, in time would transform this branch of the Boyles from Irish to English grandees. And during the Civil War, Richard the Rich supported the Royalists, but he also did his best to preserve his estates and keep him with the parliamentarians. So everyone we've been looking at, their family is kind of Royalist, Mm. but it's interesting that Henrietta Hyde's family were probably sort of the least committed to the cause. And I guess Edward Hyde is always trying to to be, you know, after the Restoration, he's trying to be very balanced. Yeah. Yeah, although he was definitely a firm kind of royalist and like fighting mm, on the royalist side at the but, time. Yeah, but yeah, but trying, mm. but then try made a lot of royalist enemies afterwards because he wanted. He was actually relatively nice to the parliamentarians. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a contemporary said that Richard Boyle or Richard the Rich was a cautious man that had no mind to venture too far for fear of his great estate, and so seemed to carry fair with all parties. So although he had a preference for royalists, it ultimately didn't matter too much who long him as long as he retained his wealth and Elizabeth Clifford Henrietta Hyde's mother was a really powerful woman who kept the estates together while her husband was away acting with great determination in this extremely difficult and tumultuous Mm. time and I think it's interesting if we compare her to Margaret Denham's mother Penelope Brooke and it often seems to have been the woman's job at this time to kind of hold everything together while the world is really seems like it's falling apart i I really like that the Boyle family motto was god's providence is my inheritance (laughs) so basically the will of god is my inheritance almost as though they're saying that all their wealth is predestined (laughs) and they're god's chosen family and as a family they were very good at acquiring more inheritances Yes, as the generations went on, the Boyle family got increasingly wealthy, connected and well-educated. An indication of this is that in the generation before Henrietta Hyde, they began to produce their own celebrities. Her uncle, Robert Boyle, has been described as the father of modern chemistry. He wrote a book called The Skeptical Chemist in 1661, where he suggested that every reaction was basically the result of things bashing into one another. (laughs) He rejected the classical Aristotelian idea that everything was made up of four elements, earth, air, fire and water. Instead, understanding elements as perfectly unmingled bodies. It's actually much 
more similar to how we see elements today, although Boyle still thought that things like gold were compounds made up a mix of infinitesimally small particles. It's quite cool. Yeah, yeah, and, it's quite, it's quite, sort of as far as I understand chemistry, like quite yeah. kind of right. Like <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of right. I mean, I think his thing of like things bashing into each other—that's actually what chemistry is really like. Isn't yeah, it? like things react and yeah, and they yeah. form the electrons. Yeah, do, you know, change oh, and anodes change. and cathodes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's been quite a long time since I did any chemistry. You can tell that we we really focus on the humanities here <laughs> in this book. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, shall I get back to Boyle mm. and his and the mm. sceptical chemist? I love that it's spelled with it's, a Y. Yeah, so it's I like should the, actually the be saying sceptical chemist. <laughs> yeah, I should actually be saying the sceptical chemist. <laughs> um, but this book actually inspired generations of thinkers and really got rid of the kind of Aristotelian model of the four elements that had dominated medieval thought. I think it's connected to the four humours, isn't it? Kind of... Yeah, and the idea of like being wet, hot, dry, and um, yeah. moist. Yeah, and that, yeah, they're, so they like their fours. They yeah. like their fours, yeah, mm. very prevalent idea. And the poet, Nicholas Brady, even incorporated Boyle's work into his religious and philosophical thinking. He wrote in his popular Ode to Saint Cecilia, Soul of the world, inspired by thee, the jarring seeds of matter did agree. Thou didst the scattered atoms bind, which, by thy laws of true proportion joined, made up of various parts one perfect harmony. So he's basically saying here that bits of matter are bashing against one another, and God's role is to sort of get all this moving matter into some kind of order. And this poem is actually still famous today because Handel set it to music in the 18th century. Yeah, I think it's a mark of how influential... Is it Robert Ball? Yeah, Robert Ball. They all have R names. Yeah, it's really so confusing. <laughs> if you didn't already have similar enough names anyway. <laughs> so the Boyle family were becoming big movers and shakers with Robert Boyle's work on chemistry still recognised today. Another of Henrietta Hyde's celebrity uncles who's less well-known today, another R name, it's honestly so confusing, <laughs> Roger Boyle, not Richard or Robert Roger, was a playwright. He composed the first original history plays of the Restoration. So very cool claim to fame, yeah. I think. So in between 1662 and 1664, he wrote The History of Henry V. And between 1665 and seven, he wrote The Black Prince. And apparently... This was sort of just this side hobby for him. He wrote it to pass the time and distract himself when he was bedridden with gout. Gosh. So it's so productive when you're ill. Yeah. To just so productive. Whip, whip out a few history plays. I really, I now really want to go and find out how different his Henry V is from Shakespeare's. It's taking. I read the first. Uh, oh, well few done, scenes you. <laughs> and it takes a lot from Shakespeare. Okay. I I feel like there's no historical extra information it's just right. like doing Shakespeare but in rhyming couplets yeah. so he, they were really into adapting Shakespeare in the restoration yeah and they also bloody loved rhyming they couplets. bloody loved rhyming couplets so, <laughs> so the, the play actually begins with a, some hilarious ones it says this is the day in which our valour must prove to the French our claim to France is just since twill no other way be understood it must be writ in characters of blood. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, they did have a different accent to mine at the time, but I don't think it changed that much. So <laughs> you really have to force the uh, understood and blood. Oh, love a good half rhyme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just like carries on the whole thing. It's like, by injuries, they us to battle cool, denying us our part, they forfeit all. It's so forced. <laughs> Yeah, and although, I mean, Shakespeare's plays to us today seem a lot better, basically, than Roger Boyle, the Restoration audience went wild for them. Peeps called Henry V as a play the most full of heights and raptures of wit and sense that ever I heard. That's so funny because Peeps makes such cutting remarks about Shakespeare. Yeah. He's always going to see a Shakespeare <laughs> and saying, that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah, and like, oh, not very impressed. Anyway, so Henrietta Hyde is born into a wealthy, cultivated family around 1646 at her mother's estates in Lonsborough, Yorkshire. And this was the year the First Civil War ended. So she was possibly born during a break in the fighting 
Um, this makes her around four years younger than Margaret Denham, uh, nine years younger than Anne Hyde. But they all grew up in this tumultuous, disturbing time of the Civil War. Also, really cool fact about Lonsborough, where Henrietta Hyde was born. Do you remember the long, hot summer we had in 2018? Yeah, I uh, was. Were you going to say you were finishing your PhD? I, know, I was doing so my PhD, sorry, and it was torture because it was so hot, and I just had to keep spending Saturdays in the British Library, which is a mm. freezing place, and I was just like, ah, oh, I just want to be outside with my yeah. friends, and I, and I knew when I was doing it that next the next summer was going to be shit, and it was. Was it? I yeah. don't really remember the next. Our summer. summers alternate. Mm. we had a terrible one this year so hopefully yeah, next year because the one before the one this before year was, was really, really good mm. see the theory's good mm. anyway that really long one long hot one that we had in 2018 meant that a drone photo could reveal the ghostly outline of Henrietta Hyde's former home mm, where so she cool. was born um, but then the rains came back and obscured it <laughs> but <laughs> apparently 2018 was a great year for aerial archaeology that's amazing I didn't even know aerial archaeology was really a thing <laughs> Um, but the house was demolished in the 19th century so it's really cool that these aerial photos are revealing its foundations 200 Mm. years after Mm. it had been demolished and it looks like it had these kind of two bigger longer side wings that were connected by a middle part of the house yeah kind of a capital I shape yes yeah definitely capital I kind of on its side looks like some of the rooms were big I mean, maybe mm. they were subdivided, but the foundation from the foundations, it looks like some of the rooms are big, big grand halls. I'm yeah. getting the, the feeling of. Yeah, it looks like in the central part, maybe you've got quite a big great hall. And then on the side wings, yeah, they, they also look really generously proportioned. Like mm. some of them, you can see there's, you can see how close the house is to the church. So it would have been really yes. easy for them to get to chapel. But also some of the rooms are like almost as big as the church. Yes, so, so true. <laughs> <laughs> they're quite roomy. It's in a very beautiful green setting, even though this was taken in a really, really dry year. Yeah, true. Um, and you can imagine her going for walks, kind of getting to the church, which was kind of would have been a bit of a social hub at the time because it's where the community met. Yeah, and it's where you were seen if you were the grand family. You had your mm. special cues where you sat and everyone could Could see. admire outfits, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and they would have had loads of servants bustling around, food coming in from the estates. Like, I think you can really picture it. So Henrietta Hyde would have been around 14 in 1660 at Charles II's restoration and when she first came to London, introduced to the opulence and the debauchery of the court, she soon became a social success, of course helped along by her family's wealth. But she was also successful in her own right. She was witty and intelligent and an entertaining conversationalist. I can see definite similarities with Margaret Mm. Denham. Perhaps they were friends, at least at first. And looking at what's valued about both of their personalities and about Anne Hyde as well Mm. and Elizabeth Mallet, I really appreciate how important conversation was in the Restoration. Mm. And I think emerging from the trauma of civil war, a good social manner was kind of seen as the utmost virtue rather than people creating unnecessary scenes or drama. Yeah, it's true. It's about being a good conversationalist is prized. I bet Margaret Dunham created a few scenes. <laughs> but, yeah, true. Yeah, maybe it's why Charles II didn't really go for her at first, because mm. he notoriously hated scenes. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Which is funny because he also chose as his first mistress someone who quite liked them, but then he settled down to someone who was just quite warm and calm as his final mistress so maybe he'd learned he doesn't like a scene mm, yeah but the kind of comedy of manners became a hugely popular genre on the stage at this time and i think it's really important to understand henrietta hyde and the rest of our suspects through this lens while social polish was highly prized the elite walked a fine line they were expected to be polished in their conversation but artificiality of manner was mercilessly lampooned. The popular genre of comedies of manners was designed to mock affectation, stupidity and miserliness. So, for example, in the really influential and enormously popular 1676 play The Man of Mode, written by George Etheridge, 
the character Sir Fopling Flutter takes French fashions much too seriously and is ridiculed for his pretension. Yeah, it's actually quite funny, this one, mm. I think. He is fairly insufferable. He sort of says au revoir all the time rather than goodbye. <laughs> and he spends far too much time obsessing about his appearance and the whole sort of fashionable French costumier he has to go to and telling everyone who they are mm. and all that kind of thing. Mm. So that's their world. I think people would have been ridiculed for this kind of you have to spend a decent amount of time on your appearance but not too much so it is a very fine line and you know be well presented but not artificial and so in the man of mode there are templates for basically how Mm. you should act so the leading man may have been based on john wilmot the earl of rochester who we spoke about a lot in the last episode the leading man is witty satirical and not very serious about anything at all really sounds quite rochester yeah (laughs) And Harriet, the female lead, is practical, clever, and able to turn any situation into a joke. And she doesn't take herself or her romantic partner's affairs too seriously. And she's basically the ideal pattern for a woman at the time. When asked whether she'll sleep with the lead, Harriet immediately replies, To men who have fared in this town like you, it would be a great mortification to live on hope. So she's quite mean and really the opposite of clingy. And the play's admirable characters, like Harriet, are witty and clever rather than particularly virtuous, running rings around socially naive people like Sir Fopling Flutter. Yeah, so this is the social context for both Margaret Denham and Henrietta High's wit, intelligence and conversational skills. All of those things are hugely admired. We can imagine them as something like Harriet in The Man of Mode skilled in verbal sparring matches, clever and practical when it comes to their love affairs. Henrietta Hyde was also strong-minded and really not afraid of fighting her own corner. Our favourite source, Anthony Hamilton, describes Henrietta Hyde as brilliant by her own native luster and full of pleasantry and wit. She was affectionate within the family, but acquisitive and didn't have many morals when it came to possessing more stuff. She could also be combative if she didn't feel like she was being given her just desserts. Of her appearance, Hamilton tells us, she was of middle size, but had a skin of dazzling whiteness, fine hands, and a foot surprisingly beautiful, even in England. Even in England. His feet coming back in. (laughs) Remember um, Countess Stanhope, who was so sad about her ugly feet in episode one. Mm, Yeah, she had to wear green stockings, poor thing. (laughs) Because they were slimming for her feet. Love it. Anyway, so back to Hamilton, describing Henrietta Hyde. Uh, Her feet are surprisingly beautiful, even in England. Long custom had given her languishing tenderness to her looks, though she never opened her eyes. And when she ogled, one would have thought she was doing something else. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. I don't really get what what else, like... What else is she supposed to be doing? Having an orgasm? Maybe like one of those exercises that women can do. Do you know what I mean? Like clinching exercises. (laughs) (laughs) I also love how obsessed with feet Hamilton seems to be. Mm. So in the year of Margaret Denham's poisoning in 1666, the Queen actually introduced a new fashion of short skirts to show off her own great feet and ankles. (laughs) So Henrietta Hyde was possibly the second biggest fan of this new trend. Because I suppose when most of the body is covered, you're sort of looking out for any distinguishing features. And maybe that's why people are so obsessed with feet. And these dresses, they weren't like mini skirts, but they did show off a bit of ankle, which was extremely risque at the time. And I guess maybe Margaret Denham was pretty into this trend too. With her nice feet. Yeah, we're told that she had really nice feet. So... (laughs) And we've got another Lily in front of us, classic, to kind of affirm the Hamilton description. So she's wearing this fabulous blue dress, leaning against a classical urn, it looks like, with a kind of Tuscan scene, some cypresses Mm. behind her. And maybe the blue... Is, it's less usual for Lily, and it's maybe showing off her kind of quite mm. white skin. Yeah, her dazzling skin that yeah. Hamilton comments on. Yeah. And she's also, like most of the other portraits that we've been mentioning in this series, she's got her sleepy eyes, her long Roman nose, mm. her plumptiousness, <laughs> her ironic pearls. <laughs> ironic rose. Yeah, ironic yeah. rose. And she's got a slightly... She's wearing a fashionable dress, but it's got an interesting sort of 
tie around the waist mm. so it looks maybe more Indian inspired or East Indies inspired maybe than some of the others it's definitely kind of not a proper dress it sort of looks like it's falling off like it's got sleeves and a neckline yeah but there's no bodice it looks like it just goes straight down and mm. then there is yeah going across her yes but her waist or hips would be Mm. pale band she looked almost a bit bored i think her, her eyes are so sleepy they could almost yeah. be closed yeah <laughs> lily really went to, lily sorry really went to town on those sleepy eyes i think it's because there's the playwright who's who's lily i think that's oh, yeah, why i always want to say lily yeah not lily anyway she looks perhaps the most bored of our restoration beauties in the lily series the winds of beauty series what a great prize. <laughs> the most bored wins of beauty. Yeah. The prize goes to Henrietta Hyde. <laughs> Congratulations. But, I mean, she has got really great hair. Mm, Her hair is, I think, one of... She's got some of the best hair in the Windsor Beauty series. Yeah, it's quite um, elaborately done at the back, isn't it? These yeah, sort of and they're really curls. gorgeous curls, catching the light. It's, yeah, it's really stunning. I mean, this, But this was really part of the fashion at the time big fashion for loose curls about the face often falling on two sides can end up looking a bit like kind of poodle's ears yeah has been compared to spaniel's ears mm. um, yeah i think they look a bit like poodles yeah quite spooly and they're actually kind of terms for the different curls so the curls that were the smaller curls near the ears were called the confidant Mm, love cute. that yeah. so much little confiding friends as a curly girl myself you know <laughs> curly girls this one goes out to you <laughs> the curls at the nape of the neck were called creve cur or heartbreakers love so, that yeah everyone loves the little nape of the neck curl mm. then there were the more sinister curls the murtiers or murderers which was a certain knot in the hair which ties and unties the curls. So actually it's more really like a scrunchie, cool. I guess. Or is it some hair that you've that, you, that you've looped you, around yeah, other hair? Yeah. We need to find a you know, one of those recreation people to recreate yeah, hairstyles for us. That would be a palisade was a wire sustaining the hair next to the Duchess or first knot, while a passager was a curled lock next to the temples. Very cool. Curl terminology. <laughs> we need to bring it back. Absolutely love it. <laughs> Start referring to your curls as like confidants. Oh yeah, I've got my, my heartbreakers going mm. on. You actually often get those little heartbreaker ones because my hairdresser told me this. You get curls more when they're more moist. So the hair that's closest to your skin is more curly because there's more moisture in your skin. Mm. Fun fact. Cool. Anyway, back to the restoration. They actually used rhubarb and mistletoe to make hair blonde, nut tree leaves to make hair red, beets, sage, bay, myrrh, and walnut shells to make hair black, or, love this one, distilled water of capers <laughs> to make hair green. <laughs> and I think this is, this is sort of relevant because Henrietta Hyde's hair does have lots of blonde blondie kind of streaks to it most of the portraits that we've been looking at are really very clearly brunette mm. um but hers is she has more kind of like goldy highlights so yeah maybe she wasn't using distilled water of capers to make her hair green but maybe <laughs> maybe she was using the rhubarb the mistletoe yeah. to give herself that kind of blondness yeah. or maybe for a Hall glow. halloween look you she would were... get out the caper exactly <laughs> there are some really actually while we're on this topic great kind of early modern beauty recipes mm. that I think it's just worth sharing because they're so fun. So to make any part of the body bald, simply use mice or rat pee. <laughs> <laughs> to make the same part hairy again, use a bit of mole blood. <laughs> you just so have good. lying around. Yeah. yeah. All these women sending their servants like, go and get me some mole blood, please. <laughs> This is sort of, a bit of a, there's another weird one which is a bit maybe a bit more I don't know a bit more sinister to stop your children going pubic hair, put tuna blood on their privities. Since the fish blood is cold and thick, it will stop hair growing. Really weird. Mm, yeah. Very strange. Mm. Like, why do you want to stop your kids growing pubic hair? 
Hmm. Well, I guess maybe you think adolescence is bad. You believe in original sin. I don't know. Not but... really. You're so much of it too Protestant. I yeah, don't know. it's kind of gross, isn't yeah. it? I find it so funny that they are talking about tuna. I always think of tuna as something in kind of tin. like modern and no, not oh. in a tin. I actually, I'm really scared of tuna. I hate it, but um. <laughs> I think of tuna as kind of like cool, trendy fish that we're all eating in sushi, even though it's really bad for the sea. I never think of uh, them having tuna in the 17th century. <laughs> but clearly tuna have been around for a while. Anyway, back to some more weird early modern beauty remedies or recipes, as they were really called then. Mm. People also used mouche. So that's flies or black patches by the vulgar. These were little patches of black silk glued to the face to cover up pimples or scars caused by smallpox or just for fashion. I think you'll have definitely seen them in portraits in in films. Sometimes people's faces were so covered by these that there was barely any skin left. (laughs) There were also, this is another great one, plumpers. Certain very thin, round and light balls to plump out and fill up the cavities of the cheek much used by old court counties. So like a kind of 17th century filler. Yeah, I love it. Like everyone wants your plump skin, dewy skin, and however you want to achieve it. You know, you have different methods. We have filler. They have cotton <laughs> little hamster balls. pouches. <laughs> yeah, so funny. <laughs> Maybe looking quite similar. I don't know. And I think also it's worth thinking about in our investigation how easy it was to access things like mercury and lead Mm. which people used on their face as a beauty treatment to kind of make their skin whiter and so potentially Henrietta Hyde might have used this to keep up her dazzling skin and how easy it was to get access to poisons like this so when we're thinking about Margaret Denham's cause of death you know you could find this from any apothecary kind of promising you beautiful forever young skin Mm. and stuff like that there's one toxic recipe for a clear complexion which says take the juice of lemons two ounces rose water two ounces mercury sublimate two drams white lead two drams mingle them like to anointment anoint the part in the evening and in the morning do it with butter (laughs) (laughs) so i don't the butter sort of makes sense to me it's sort of a moisturizer the mercury and the lead (laughs) The butter facial. <laughs> yeah. The butter mercury mm. lead facial. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'll be experimenting with that one. No, maybe with the butter. Although I maybe not because my no. pillow sort of just oh, yeah, wake no, up really, really buttery. Like yeah. yeah. Anyway, so Hamish Hyde may have had access to these poisons, worth bearing in mind. Yeah. And I guess lots of the other female suspects who we've been exploring yeah. so far. And the male suspects. That's true. Yeah. yeah. We're kind of building up a picture of someone strong-minded, witty and intelligent. We can't forget her lovely feet, obviously, (laughs) an important aspect. Of course, when she comes to London, she's a social success. She's going to make a great marriage. And she really does. Her family was wealthy and connected on her mother's side, but Henrietta Hyde manages to snag a huge matrimonial prize, Lawrence Hyde. His father was Edward Hyde, one of the most important men in the kingdom, and at the time of their marriage in 1665, he was pretty much running the country, Lord Chancellor at that point, isn't he? Mm. So we talked about his stodgy morals in episode two when we came across him. Remember, he said that his daughter Anne Hyde should be sent to the tower for marrying James Duke of York. So yeah, moral moral guy, perhaps (laughs) to the um, point of cruelty to daughters. Mm. But in his defence, he was trying to reign in a crazy court, massive overspending and united country so divided that they had just fought a brutal civil war. So maybe we should give Ed- Edward Hyde a bit more bit more respect, just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Most of his policies in the early 1660s were to do with uniting these two bitterly divided political points of view and trying to appease both sides, which yeah, must have been an impossible challenge. Anyway, Henrietta Hyde marries into this very politically influential family in 1665 when she was about 21. Her younger sister had a dowry of around £10,000, so that's about £2.5 million today. Henrietta Hyde's dowry was therefore probably similar, if not bigger, because Henrietta Hyde was older and she was making a more prestigious match. 
The marriage was apparently for love, although it was certainly a beneficial meeting of two wealthy and connected families. The fact that Henrietta Hyde actively chose her own bridegroom is interesting though and worth taking note of. It suggests that both her family trusted her judgment and that she was interested in politics. You know, the Hyde family were the political movers and shakers of the time. Yeah, so it's interesting how she's kind of joining this family, this very political family, and her husband was also, we know, very interested in politics and became very politically influential. He was nicknamed Laurie and was the younger of Edward Hyde's two sons. A contemporary describes him as the smoothest man mm. in the court. <laughs> it sounds kind of quite charming, but then in a bit of a contradictory way, the same source also says... I never knew a man that was so soon put into a passion that was so long before he could bring himself out of it, in which he would say things that were never forgot by anybody but himself. Therefore, he always had more enemies than he thought he had, although he had as many professedly so as any man of his time. So, although he could be very smooth and charming, he kind of had a terrible temper, bursting into rage, but then quickly forgetting that he'd been really angry, but the people he'd been angry at didn't forget so quickly and kind of resented him so sounds like a bit of a nightmare really yeah maybe a difficult personality but then Henrietta Hyde had her (laughs) difficult points as well so and I also think if we were to go back in time we would be really shocked by how openly people and particularly men express their emotions like Mm. we heard last episode about Rochester boxing someone on the Mm. ear we're always hearing about people getting into duels and sort of drawing their swords or like beating each other up Lord Chesterfield being really openly upset about his wife having an affair. Yeah, and people yeah, being quite open and maybe like vulnerable with their emotions in a way that we aren't mm. so much today. Yeah, really interesting. So we're looking at Lawrence Hyde's portrait now. He was, uh, for what's not painted by Lily. Yeah, although oh. it sort of looks... It exactly looks very Lily, doesn't it? Clearly, uh, Lily was started some major trends here. Mm. Anyway, I'm not an art historian. I'm not going to go there. This portrait was painted by Nicholas Mice. Lawrence Hyde appears to be wearing a really kind of Roman-style tunic mm. here. Quite velvety. Yeah, it looks like a velvet great. tunic. Velvet yeah. tunic, quite different to the Earl of Rochester's mm. more sort of armour-esque Roman mm. tunic in his portrait in the previous episode. And Lawrence Hyde's got his periwig on, long curly hair. He's got his rural background, like kind of rugged rock, and then some nice sort of curling hills and a sort of sunsetty sky in the background. He's standing very proudly in the foreground of mm. his portrait, looking mm. out. <laughs> And looking slightly down as well, so it gives him quite an imposing air. And he's kind of taking up quite a lot of space in the portrait. Yes, he is. He's got his arms in this big kind of elbows out pose. Mm, yeah, and he looks he looks quite appealing, really. I feel like there's a half smile, so even yeah, though he's slightly... Yeah. He's looking quite imposing. He's got but half he smile. also looks like this whole thing is a bit of a joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got this... One of his arms, his left arm, is doing some crazy mm. elbow bend. I'm not, mm. not really sure what that's about. It looks about. quite uncomfortable. It looks very uncomfortable. Yeah. Hope you didn't have to stand like that for too long. <laughs> Even though their marriage was for love, Henrietta Hyde may have quickly embarked on an affair with another courtier called Henry German. Constancy in marriage was, after all, not very fashionable in the Restoration and the court always had a charged sexual atmosphere. People groped one another very publicly, as we've heard. There was always a not very subtle flirtation going on somewhere. Hamilton tells us that Henrietta Hyde was one of the first beauties who were prejudiced with a blind prepossession in favour of German he seems to have had a magnetic attraction. The gossip went that he was secretly married to the Queen Mother, Henrietta Maria. And there was also gossip about him and Anne Hyde. Mm. Everyone agreed that German had excellent legs, but straight men could not understand why so many outwardly sensible women totally lost their wits over him, which I love because they're just like baffled. Uh. And he clearly <laughs> had this just magnetism that people loved. According to Anthony Hamilton... German's head was large and his legs small. 
His features were not disagreeable, but he was affected in his carriage and behaviour. All his wit consisted in expressions learned by rote, which he occasionally employed either in raillery or in love. <laughs> this makes me always think of Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, who, learns, <laughs> who says things off by heart that he'll then practice and say to Catherine de Bourgh. <laughs> yeah, this guy German must have been a, a, a real notable figure at the court. He makes it into Andrew Marvell's satire, Last Instructions to a Painter, which we talked about in episode two, because Anne Hyde and her potential using of the dark arts of poison chocolate gets a mention mm. in this the poem. The cordial meal of the cacao. <laughs> Great line. <laughs> um, so German's mention in this poem goes like this. The new court's pattern, stallion of the old, him neither wit nor courage did exalt, but fortune chose him for her pleasure salt. Paint him with Draymond's shoulders, butcher's mane, Membered like mules with elephantine sheen. (laughs) (laughs) This is full of insults. Yeah. And Marvell's basically saying how low class German looks. Built like a Draymond, so someone who carried or drove goods, wagons, would have had to been pretty fit as they had to load the goods in and out of the wagon all the time. Also saying that he has a face like a butcher, butcher's mane. And penis as big as a donkey's. <laughs> so, you know, is this really an, an insult? But maybe this is why all the women are falling over him. Yeah, I know. And, short all, legs. And, all, and all the straight men are like, I don't understand. Don't get it. No, yeah. don't get it. He has a massive penis and is super strong and muscular. <laughs> why is everyone so attracted to him? Just because we're not lifting goods out of wagons all the time. <laughs> yeah. And we're wearing our tunics just look quite fat in them. Yeah. I wrote in our notes, he wishes fortune chose him for his pleasure salt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what pleasure salt is supposed to mean, but... It sounds good, I think Ma- it? I think Marvel's bitter, basically. Yeah, yeah, I think Marvel is definitely, definitely bitter. Mm, yeah. Uh, he's like, he's as ever on the side of the, the courtier royalists. <laughs> <laughs> and Hamilton has a, quite an interesting reading of their affair. He suggests that Henrietta Hyde was attracted to German, not so much because of his muscly back or huge penis, <laughs> but because the affair would bring her attention. Mm. So Hamilton says that Henrietta Hyde was of the opinion that so long as she was not talked of on account of German, all her other advantages would avail nothing for her glory. It was therefore to receive this finishing stroke that she resolved to throw herself into his arms. German accepted her at first, but being soon puzzled what to do with her, he thought it best to sacrifice her to Lady Castlemaine. The sacrifice was far from being displeasing to her. It was much to her glory to have carried off German from so many competitors, but this was of no consequence in the end. So the Countess Castlemaine, we've mentioned quite a few times, she helped Margaret Denham and James, Duke of York, to finally get together for their affair and was the king's mistress. She was one of the most beautiful and talked about women of the court. And Henrietta Hyde, according to this reading, Mm. seems to have had a reputation for wanting status. So it's interesting that kind of elite women could get higher status by having affairs, sort of like keeping the tabloids interested in your scandal yeah by doing something interesting yeah and and you keep in the kind of public eye and i guess all publicity is good publicity like that kind of philosophy like henrietta hyde pioneered it yeah she wants to have a place in public culture and yeah she she gets it it. go her (laughs) anyway so regardless of whether this affair did actually take place and regardless of henrietta hyde's motivation for it lawrence hyde Uh, and Henrietta had a good relationship so pretty happy marital affair Mm. um, whether or not this affair with fit German actually happened (laughs) and she soon came to occupy a key place in the Hyde clan and she became really close to Anne Hyde who as next in line to the throne had the highest status of any of the Hydes and highest height the height of the highest height so like I'm in my fair lady or something anyway um, Anne appointed Henrietta Hyde to be governess to her daughter who was confusingly also called Anne Mm, they love it with the names (laughs) but this is a really big move it would have been a prestigious well-paid appointment at the time without much work involved you know this isn't like Jane Eyre being 
poor governess or any of those other poor governesses we imagine from the Victorian period who really have no life and are just essentially slaves to these horrible families. Mm. We know that Henrietta Hyde was protective of the benefits this appointment gave her as she she actually kind of jostled with her charge, Princess Anne, as to who should have the best apartments in the Palace of Whitehall. Henrietta Hyde was definitely a governess for status more so than for any kind of love of education or good relationship with her charge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of entertaining today that the young Princess Anne and Henrietta Hyde were fighting over apartments. I think we would actually really find Whitehall quite quite gross today. So despite having nice loos or water closets, whereas we've heard courtiers could, um, you know, go off to go and have sex (laughs) courtiers seemed to just poo in corners (laughs) when the court stayed at oxford in 1665 they left and at their departure their excrements were in every corner in chimneys studies coal houses cellars (laughs) it's so gross and yeah this is supposed to be the height of the elite and they're just leaving their poo everywhere maybe this is why everyone thinks it's weird that Anne Hyde uses the water closet so much and assumes she's having sex in there because Because people weren't using the loos to actually do go to the loo exactly they were just they were just squatting down god it's so gross (laughs) We're really building up a picture of a woman at the top of the social heap and he wants to keep it that way. She liked attention to be on her and she enjoyed the influential high status position in society her marriage has brought her. You can imagine Henrietta Hyde's anger when, not a year after her marriage, Margaret Denham started making trouble by having an affair with the heir to the throne, James, and trying to pull him into her political faction, potentially cutting off the Hyde family's access to power. Henrietta Hyde's connection with the Pides brought her into contact with Margaret Denham after 1665. Although, you know, the elite was very small and they likely would have known each other. The fact that they were both painted around the same time by the same artist, Peter Lely, also highlights the fact that they were moving in the same circles. We certainly have more evidence that they knew each other and socialised than we do of Elizabeth Mallet and Margaret Denham. That's true, despite my best efforts. <laughs> <laughs> we have a sort of tenuous connection with those two. But is this enough of a motive to commit murder? The fact that by becoming James's principal mistress, Margaret Denham was taking some of the Hyde power mm. away. I think it would have really pissed them off. Yeah, and I think also there are some coincidences with the timing that are really interesting and may make Henrietta Hyde a more likely suspect. Mm. But for this, we have to look at the broader context of the time and the terrible disasters that beset England. So, in late 1664, three years before Margaret Denham's death, a comet blazed through the sky at night. There's talk at the time that it's an omen of bad things to come, as if you know, bad, in, with the civil wars, enough yeah. bad things hadn't already yeah. happened. Um, but by the winter of 1665, the really bad things had started, or should I say, started again, because a deadly attack of plague had taken control of London, and it lasted into 1666, when Henrietta Hyde was around 22 thousands were thrown into plague pits the living sometimes jumping in among the dead from sheer despair clergyman john allen living in the city records the plague getting closer and closer to his house his anxiety rising as it approaches him he wrote i am through mercy yet well in the midst of death and that too approaching nearer and nearer not many doors off He was surrounded by the doleful and almost universal and continual ringing of bells. Eventually, plague found him. Alan's brother left the house one morning and returned with a stiffness under his ear, where he had a swelling that could not be brought to rise and break, but choked him. That's the bubonic plague. Yeah, it's so sad. It's so sad. I mean, imagine how freaked out everyone is by COVID now. Imagine being able to see this disease and yeah. know that you've got it and know that there's You're almost there's nothing you die. can do and it's affecting children it affects everyone i just think it's kind of so painful to me that he writes it's not many doors off yeah like it's gonna it really get you. reminds me of that scene in lord of the rings when 
he's reading is it Merry or Pippin? They're they're reading they are coming. They oh are yeah, coming. the drums. The drums, the drums. In the deep. And it really, really reminds <laughs> me of that. It's so sinister. Yeah, I mean, Plague is, is just nightmare. There's actually a really great book. I think it's designed for sort of teenage readers, but highly recommend it. It's called Parcel of Patterns. Yeah. And it's about this village called Eam. Um, oh, where they stopped the plague and they quarantined. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, but the plague basically gets in through a parcel of patterns from a tailor mm. for making a, mm. a fancy dress. Anyway, digression, back to this poor clergyman, John Anne, whose brother comes back with a, a plague swelling and, yeah, that's and dies. Kind of game over yeah. them. And, you know, really horrible at this time, con artists were selling really useless cordials to the desperate healthy people were shut up in houses to die with their infected relatives. Some turned to religion, but others just totally lost their faith in God. There are records of people jeering from taverns going, there is no God, or God is a devil. It's crazy Mm. at that time. Yeah, yeah. if you think about how religious everyone was. Yeah, religion totally structured your life. Yeah, And then people are going around saying God is a devil. It must have been Mm. really just awful. Yeah. And as if this wasn't enough, 1666, as we've already mentioned, was the year of the Great Fire of London. (laughs) Woo! And it was actually predicted by some, although the type of people who are sort of always predicting imminent demise, so I don't think they can get much credit. A Quaker walked through Bartholomew Fair in the east of the city with a pan of fire and brimstone on his head prophesying conflagration. It had been a really unusually hot August, drying out the thatch and wood buildings. Would have been a great year for aerial photography. Yeah, if if only only they'd had it. (laughs) When we get time travel, we should get some drones and go into 1666. (laughs) And it provided the absolute perfect conditions Mm. for fire. Combined with the wind, which carried the fire east and west, nothing seemed to be able to stop it. They tried creating fire breaks, but the fire was just too Mm. strong and kept burning through them the diarist john evelyn recalls the noise and cracking and thunder of the impetuous flames the shrieking of women and children the hurry of people the fall of towers houses and churches was like a hideous storm and the air all so hot and inflamed that one was not able to approach it peeps saw it grow into a most horrid malicious bloody flame not like the fire flame of an ordinary fire. I mean, it's like that fire that they get in Harry Potter, the last book, that like fumedy fire. God, it's been so long since everything. I read the last book. <laughs> you can tell I'm but, a Harry Potter geek. Yeah. Anyway, eventually the fire did die out, helped by gunpowder to blow up rows of houses on its way, creating a fire break. Mm. It's so crazy that gunpowder was used to help stop a fire. Yeah. It sounds so counterintuitive, isn't it? But it go does. them. Yeah, go, yeah. yeah. Three days later, the ground was still so hot you could hardly walk on it. And for months, new fires would erupt as people opened their cellar doors and ignited the embers with fresh oxygen. It must be such a nightmare. It's like, I've bloody well reconstructed my house. Yeah, and and then... It's going off again. (laughs) Yeah. And I love as well, it's so poetic, in the aftermath, a delicate yellow flower with its petals kind of furling outwards bloomed all over Mm. the city. It's called the London Rocket and it was seen again in the aftermath of World War II air raids. That's really wonderful fact. Yeah, it's kind of blooming in adversity. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But Londoners really were having a tough time, and because it was the capital city, it was having a kind of knock-on effect on the whole country, as well as on international trade. So as if these disasters weren't enough, the Second Anglo-Dutch War concluded in humiliating defeat for the English. In 1667, the Dutch came right up the Medway, destroying English ships, and there were fears that they were going to reach the capital. They actually easily could have done, but they decided to turn back. Even though he had opposed this ill-fated war, Edward Hyde was held to blame for everything that had gone wrong over the last three years. (laughs) Sorry, Everdyne. <laughs> Fire of London was your fault, and you were in Pudding Lane <laughs> with the bakery. You were standing there with the match. <laughs> anyway, Charles II promptly sacks him, and I think actually this was the kind of silver lining for Charles because yeah. he'd actually I think been becoming pretty tired of his Chancellor's prosy morals and dictatorial tone. And Edward Hyde was led from the Palace of Whitehall. His enemies gleefully shouting abuse at him, including Castlemaine. 
Apparently, Edward Hyde replied to her insults with great dignity, saying, Madam, pray remember that if you live, you will also be old. Mm. I think it's very wise. Yeah, it really makes him go up in my estimation there. Yeah, and there's some sort of learning for all of us, I think, of humility in our time of glory. Yeah, and just don't take it out on the easy scapegoat. Mm. Firing someone is not always the answer. Mm. Anyway, so in January 1667, which is when Margaret Denham dies, the final blow for Edward Hyde hadn't come yet, but it was in the wind. People were really unhappy after plague, after fire, who can blame them? They were looking for a scapegoat. And no one was pushing harder for Edward Hyde's downfall than Margaret Denham's uncle, the Earl of Bristol. Edward Hyde's career, even his life, was under threat. Henrietta Hyde may well have hated the person who was trying to bring down her father-in-law, the source of family wealth and power. We know that Henrietta Hyde was influenced by status, that her family were known for unscrupulously protecting what was theirs. To remove the threat to her social and political power base, did Henrietta Hyde think it necessary to kill Margaret Denham? And does this prove that Henrietta Hyde was definitely the Rochester that John Aubrey mentions when he says that Margaret Denham was poisoned by the hands of the Countess Rochester with chocolate? Yeah, I mean, it's quite compelling, I, isn't it? I am right now finding it really compelling, even though I was really gunning for Elizabeth Mallow before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just too easily convinced. <laughs> yeah, I sort of, every time we do an episode, I'm like, it was definitely yeah, this person. Yeah, definitely this person. Yeah. So we're back to the quote from Aubrey, which is such a distressingly small piece of evidence. We've established that Henrietta Hyde had access to Margaret Denham. They moved in the same circles. They were both very closely associated with Anne Hyde. So if you remember, Margaret Denham was one of her ladies of the bedchamber. They all got their pictures painted by Lily. And it's Anne Hyde's husband, who Margaret's having her very public affair with. Yeah. And so Henrietta Hyde definitely had a motive for murder. She would have been upset by the potential threat to her status and hostile to anyone trying to reduce the Hyde family power. Her husband, Lawrence Hyde, as well, who Henrietta Hyde was supposed to be in love with, Mm. was also very fond of his father and defended him even in his disgrace and exile. That's nice of him. Yeah. They were all pulling together, those Hydes. (laughs) Yeah, they were quite a close family, I think. Like, you want to be part of this quite strong clan. Yeah. Um, But to argue against Henrietta Hyde as a suspect, Margaret Denham's younger half-brother, Edward Russell, was later a very close political ally of her husband, Lawrence Mm. Hyde. So would Margaret Denham's brother have cozied up to the family that killed his sister? Yeah, or who he might have even thought had killed his sister. Mm. But unless it was covered up very well. Yeah. So he didn't think they'd killed his sister. Yeah. I mean, I think even if it was just a suspicion, though, he wouldn't have worked with them. Hmm. Yeah, although it was clearly talked about at the time... And if Henrietta Hyde is getting a mention as the Lady Rochester, then it's probable that this gossip will be circulating and Edward Russell, Margaret Denham's half-brother, would have heard about it. I don't know. But maybe politics was more important to him than loyalty to a dead woman. Maybe Mm. he just wanted to be in with the Hydes. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Okay, inconclusive. Mm. But that is an argument against... But we know Henrietta Hyde was fond of money and status. She married into the powerful Hyde family and almost immediately comes across a woman who's trying to undercut that. Did she slip a little of the lead from her makeup into Margaret Denham's Mm. hot chocolate? I think it's also making me rethink episode two in a way. At the end of episode two, I think we were both quite convinced that Anne Hyde would have been far too busy having just given birth and lost children to have been the murderer but perhaps we should rethink her as a suspect Mm. since she did have a stronger motive than Henrietta Hyde her sister-in-law by marriage and it was actually her father's life and career under threat after all so maybe even though they didn't have that great a relationship at some points in her life maybe it really does strengthen Anne Hyde's motives against Margaret Denham not only has she got the jilted wife side of the motive she's also got the you're messing with my family's power bitch you mm. know yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, so I think we definitely want to rethink Anne Hyde as a suspect, and the case for Henrietta Hyde is very compelling, and I'm sort of convinced that she's probably the Rochester that John Aubrey is talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think maybe that's... Maybe, yeah, maybe we haven't... Because we have a definite a... motive there, whereas yeah. we have a possible affair with Rochester. Yeah, that's true. We did actually speculate pretty heavily throughout the <laughs> I mean, episode. I really like the idea that she was <laughs> also having an affair with Rochester, as well as the Duke of York, and was just a very busy woman. Yeah, so I think we've done well to eliminate Elizabeth Mallet from yeah. the list here. Yeah. But... We haven't yet covered, we're terrible detectives really, because we haven't covered the person the police are always supposed to look at first, which is of course, the husband. The husband. Sir John Denham, <laughs> poet and wit. We haven't heard much about him yet. It's true. We, ba- we barely touched on him. And the people at the time definitely suspected him. Remember, he makes it into um, our pre-war history book as well. He does, yeah. And, you know, when you really think about it, was John Denham happy to sit idly by and watch his wife engage in a highly public and embarrassing affair? Did he not care? Or did he do something to stop it forever? And those are the questions that we're going to be asking next time when we look at John Denham. Maybe it was him who hath done it. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support the podcast, head over and find us on Patreon, where you'll find extra content about this fascinating period in history, early modern recipes, making of the podcast, and much more. Don't forget to like and leave a review.